Section 10 of The Bible Under Trial. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Gillian Hendry. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr. Israel's God and Worship. Parts 3 to 5. Part 3. Thus I have sketched, I think not unfairly, for I wish to give it full justice, the theory of religion as it is ordinarily presented by writers of the Wellhausen persuasion. There are naturally shadings of the picture, sometimes in a more extreme, sometimes in a more cautious direction, but the main outlines are, beyond a question, those which I have indicated. What have I now to oppose to it? I answer in a word, I simply oppose to it the whole literature of the Bible. The whole theory is, as I regard it, an inversion of the facts. The attempt to make a pyramid stand upon its apex instead of on its base. And this, I think, it is not really difficult to prove. Let us revert again to the commencement. One speaks sometimes of the play of Hamlet with Hamlet left out. But that surely would be a small matter compared with the religion and history of Israel with the patriarchs left out. What is the main thing in the pre-Mosaic religion of Israel, if not the call of Abraham and those covenants with and promises to the fathers on which the whole after-development rests? Is this merely legend? The whole character of the tradition speaks against the idea, not to refer to the minute corroborations which archaeological research has latterly been furnishing of the fidelity of its contents. Footnote. These will be referred to again. End footnote. But let us take the later history, where it may be thought that the foundations are surer. The book of Deuteronomy continually assumes the earlier history and the Abrahamic covenant as the core of it. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 8, chapter 6 verse 10 and so on. The so-called J.E. history also allowed to go back, in one of its forms at least, to the 9th or 10th century, as the full record of these things. The clear, consentient narratives of the Exodus embodied in that history have as their indubitable postulate that the God who appeared to Moses and wrought the salvation of the people was the God of the Fathers, Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 and following. Who were these fathers? None but the patriarchs of the book of Genesis. Probe the national consciousness of Israel at what stage we may. This thought of the fathers is found fundamental to it. Yet all this is dismissed, as if the ignoring of it did not merit even a word of explanation. What next is the proof of the picture of pre-Mosaic religion, which is substituted for the biblical it would not in itself be strange if, with the early Hebrews, as among ourselves, traces of popular superstitions were found mingling with the higher elements in their religion. But how scant and precarious is the evidence which the critics can adduce even for this assumption. It consists chiefly of sporadic intimations in the narrative on which an interpretation is forced, in no way natural or necessary, and often positively inadmissible. Is it stone worship? Jacob set up and consecrated a pillar as a memorial of his vision and called the stone, or as it is in a neighbouring verse, the place, Bethel. Genesis chapter 
Genesis chapter 28, verses 11 to 22. This is interpreted to mean that Jacob anointed the stone in homage to the indwelling deity. Quote, Unction being in the east an act of courtesy to a guest was fitly offered to the spirit in the stone, which the worshipper desired to conciliate. End quote. Addis, page 26. Where in the book of Genesis are the faintest hints justifying such an interpretation? Is it sacred trees? The patriarchs planted trees and sat under the shade of them. Abraham lived at the Oaks of Mamre. Does this justify the belief that a spirit was supposed to be dwelling in these trees? What if certain trees in Canaan had names? Genesis chapter 12 verse 6, Judges chapter 9 verse 37, which might imply such superstitions. Did the patriarchs, with their higher enlightenment, share in these? So the patriarchs dug wells, and there was a place called Beersheba, the well of the oath. Does the fact that Beersheba was a favourite place of pilgrimage, even for subjects of the northern kingdom, in the time of Amos, Amos chapter 5 verse 5, chapter 8 verse 14, justify the inference that, quote, evidently it was a sacred well, end quote. Addis, page 31. Or is this worship of wells proved by the old snatch of Hebrew song in Numbers chapter 21, verses 17 and 18, quote, Rise up, O well, sing ye to it, end quote. Mr. Addis wisely discards totemism, or worship of animals, from which the worshipper claimed descent, page 32. But he has a clinging to the idea of sacred animals, of which a proof is seen in, quote, the stone of Zoholeth, note, serpent stone, probably a place name, like hundreds among ourselves, without the slightest connection with serpent worship, end note, which is by N. Rogel, end quote, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 9. The proof of worship of the dead, which is a favourite hypothesis, rests on no better foundation. What are we to say of the proof drawn from the pillar set up by Jacob at Rachel's grave, Genesis chapter 35, verse 20? That consultation of the dead was prohibited by the law, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 11, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31, is surely a poor evidence that it was part of the recognised religion. Part 4. Where, as a next branch of the case, is the proof to be found that Jehovah the God of the Israelites, was, till the time of the prophets, only a tribal God. Not in the Bible's own representations, where, from the time of Abraham down, the only recognised conception of God is a monotheistic one. Footnote. New support to this view is found in the recently published book of Professor Bench of Jena on Israelitish monotheism. End footnote. The book of Genesis is, as every fair mind must acknowledge, from its first page to its last, a monotheistic book. If traces of a worship of teraphim are found in Laban's family, Jacob put the images away from his household as incompatible with the worship of the one true God. Genesis chapter 35, verses 2 and 4. Quote, the theological presuppositions of different parts of the book vary widely, Centuries of religious thought, for example, must lie between the God who partakes of the hospitality of Abraham under a tree, chapter 18, and the majestic, transcendent, invisible being at whose word the worlds are born, 
End quote. So writes Mr. McFadgen. Footnote. Old Testament. Introduction. Page 8. End footnote. On Mr. McFadgen's own showing of dates, very many centuries did not lie between the two narratives. Footnote. Wellhausen makes the story about Abraham the very latest creations of Israelitish imagination. End footnote. And I believe that Genesis chapter 1 is far older than he supposes. What whatever the anthropomorphisms of the so-called J, and God is not immediately to be identified with his theophanies, it is admitted by even so radical a critic as Professor H. P. Smith that in Genesis they are brought, quote, into harmony with the strictest monotheism, end quote. Footnote. Old Testament History, page 16. End footnote. It is possible to produce from J passages on God as exalted as anything in the Bible. For example, Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. In Exodus and the other books, Jehovah is viewed as the God of all the earth, who of his free grace and love has chosen Israel to be his peculiar people. Genesis chapter 19, verse 5. It is no doubt the case that many in Israel failed to rise to the height of this great conception, so that, even if Jephthah spoke in terms which implied an inadequate conception of Jehovah's relation to Chemosh, Judges chapter 9, verse 24, the fact would mean but little. Most probably, however, his language is only a form of accommodation to the standpoint of the king of Ammon. Parallels in abundance may be found in missionary literature. The other passage commonly cited, namely David's being driven out to, quote, serve other gods, end quote, 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 19, is strangely misunderstood when taken to mean that, outside of Canaan, quote, the worship of Jehovah became an impossibility. He had perforce to serve other gods in the land of his exile, end quote. Addis, page 79. Does any sane mind believe that outside of Palestine, in Moab, for example, David did serve other gods than Jehovah? Or where is a single instance of the kind to be found? Footnote. The same expression occurs in the monotheistic book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 36 to 64. End footnote. No, Jehovah, in the minds of his true worshippers, was believed in as the one true God universal lord and ruler in providence from the first and the prophets when they came on the scene never dreamed that they were bringing in any new doctrine but preached loyalty and obedience to the same jehovah as their fathers had known since the day he made his covenant with them at horeb footnote in these contentions we have in the main winkler with us it is incredible that ideas so elevated should take their rise in the sudden manner supposed. End footnote. The proof that, till prophetic times, image worship was a legitimate part of Israel's religion equally breaks down. The form which this proof usually takes is, indeed, a choice example of the methods of the theory. We point, for example, to the fact that images are unknown in the legitimate worship of God in Genesis. The answer is that this is late and untrustworthy legend. We point as a cardinal evidence to the prohibition of images in the second commandment. We are told that the second commandment is not from Moses. 
we ask for a reason. We are told it cannot be, for the worship of images was common in Mosaic times and long after. We inquire where is the proof of this. We are told that Yahweh was worshipped from early times in the form of an ox. We press again for evidence. We are pointed to Jeroboam's two calves. But how do these prove it? Because Jeroboam cannot be supposed to be introducing a new form of worship, and there are traces in the story of Micah in Judges that of old an idolatrous worship was set up in Dan. Judges chapter 18 verses 30 and 31. We urge the facts that this was evidently a schismatic worship. Verse 31. That there is no trace of images in the lawful service of Jehovah. That there was no image in the temple at Jerusalem and that Jeroboam's action is consistently denounced as sin. All avails nothing, and Gideon's ephod, and even the brazen serpent of Moses, are pressed into the proof that Jehovah was worshipped, forsooth, in the form of an ox. The argument carries us next to Josiah's reformation. That Deuteronomy produced a strong impression in Josiah's mind, and led to his reforms, is evident from the history but I maintain that nearly every other point in the critical case rests on assumption and fallacy. The hypothesis of pious fraud, which many advocate, is repugnant to every right-thinking mind. If we turn to the narrative in Second Kings, we find that the book discovered in the temple was accepted by all classes as a genuine mosaic work. It violently interfered on the hypothesis with powerful existing interests, yet no one, then or after, ventured to question it. If we consult the book itself, we find that it claims to be from Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 9. It is a fair literary question how far the book in its present form shows signs of later date in the reproduction, editing and annotation. Footnote. Everyone admits this of the last chapter and there are other parts of the book which indicate it not less clearly. End footnote. Of those last addresses which Moses is related to have written and delivered to the priests. But there cannot be a shadow of a doubt that the book claims to be substantially a work of Moses. It embodies old laws which were long obsolete in the age of Josiah, and which a writer in that age could have no object in introducing. It is alleged to have been written to further the abolition of high places and promote centralisation of worship. But high places are never mentioned in it. The assertion that its provisions for Levites are intended for, quote, the disestablished priests, end quote, of the high places, is without a trace of support in the text. As shown before, a central sanctuary was the ideal of worship in Israel from the beginning, and Deuteronomy does no more than hold up this as an ideal to be realised when the people should be settled and have rest from their enemies round about. Chapter 12, verse 10 On the fluctuating critical theories of the book I have already written. Part 5 We are thus brought finally to the exile, on which it is not necessary to add much to what has been adduced in previous papers. When, from flights of theory, one descends to cold facts, it is amazing how unreal the post-exilian hypothesis of the origin of the law 
discovers itself to be. It has no foothold in any one genuine fact in the history. Ezekiel's degradation of the non-Zadokite priests, which there is no reason to suppose was ever carried out, in no way contradicts, but rather presupposes, the older broken law, assigning the charge of the sanctuary to the Levites. The supposed activity of priests and scribes in collating and manufacturing laws and stamping on them a fictitious mosaic character, the vehement struggles of the degraded priests to regain their lost privileges, mirrored in the story of Korah, the compilation of the laws into a system and construction of a Pentateuch by, say, Ezra, are bold efforts of imagination which utterly lack historical attestation. What we do find is that, when the exiles returned from Babylon nearly a century before Ezra produced his law, Levites, with their genealogies, were present in considerable force. Ezra chapter 2. The narrative in Nehemiah chapter 8 gives no hint that the law which Ezra read was new. The whole account plainly proceeds on the assumption that it was old. The entire congregation, with priests and Levites, accepted it with unquestioning faith as the law of Moses. The objections to this view of the antiquity of the law are chiefly two, its alleged irreconcilability with the simpler provisions in Deuteronomy and the supposed silence of the previous history as to its peculiar regulations. In the law, for example, it is said we have priests and Levites, but in Deuteronomy only Levites any of whom may be priests. But it is precisely this latter assertion I would contest. The difference is explained largely by the different scope of the two writings. In Deuteronomy, Moses is addressing the congregation years after the tribe of Levi had been chosen and when the functions of its several members were well known. His language, therefore, has regard prevailingly to the tribe as a whole. The Levitical laws, on the other hand, have specially to do with the duties of the priests, and only incidentally with those of the Levites. Indeed, in the whole book of Leviticus, the Levites, with the solitary exception of chapter 25, verses 32 and 33, are not so much as named. The expression priests and Levites is not found in any part of the Levitical code, any more than in Deuteronomy. The objection from silence is one to which, for a reason given in a previous paper, namely the wilderness form into which all parts of the law are cast, too much importance should not be given. But it would be easy to show that this silence has been much exaggerated. There are numerous traces of Levitical laws in Deuteronomy itself, and as before shown, the main provisions are found in the so-called Law of Holiness, which critics like Dr. Driver admit to be in substance pre-exilian. Dr. Driver allows that the main stock of the Levitical law was in operation before the exile. This gives up the case in principle, for if the main stock is compatible with silence in the history, much else may be. Prophetic denunciations of a religion of mere ritual prove nothing against the divine origin of the ritual or against its proper use, which the prophets themselves in many ways recognise. On the other hand, 
prophetic books and historical books alike conclusively attest how a large part of the levitical law was already in operation such a passage as isaiah chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 for example is saturated with levitical vocabulary new moons assembly convocation solemn meeting appointed feasts and so on in the historical books besides allusions to ark tabernacle Aaronic priesthood, high priest, ephod, showbread. We have evidence of knowledge of festivals, of burnt offerings, peace offerings, meal offerings, drink offerings, probably sin offerings as well, of ritual of worship, of laws of purity, of clean and unclean food, of leprosy, of consanguinity, and so on. Even if it were granted that some final codification or resetting of these laws was accomplished by Ezra, it would not militate one whit against their antiquity and substantially mosaic character. The post-exilian period is chiefly interesting because of the determined efforts of the critics to carry down into it the Psalms and a considerable part of the other literature of the Old Testament. The attempt is favoured by our almost absolute ignorance of the actual history and religious conditions of the period in question. There is here a vacuum which can be filled up at pleasure, but assertion is not proof, and when we ask, for instance, for evidence that the bulk, if not the whole, of the Psalter is post-exilian in origin, and especially that none of it can go back to David, we are surprised to find how largely theory and unwarrantable speculation take the place of proof. We are told so far rightly, that the titles of the Psalms are not to be depended on, that David, that is, the reconstructed David of the critics, could not have written Psalms, that the religious ideas of the Psalms are far beyond David's age, and so on. The theory of religion above criticised is in fact brought in to determine what could or could not be. It used to be held as beyond question that at least the 18th Psalm belonged to David but even this psalm would prove too much and must go the way of the rest. Yet it seems to me nearly as certain as anything can be that a collection of psalms called from its major part the Psalms of David, as other collections were called later of the sons of Korah and so on, was in existence before the exile. And the uniform tradition ascribing psalms to David is not a fact to be easily got over. Certain groups of psalms, those, for example, making mention of the king, cannot, without extreme forcing, be regarded as other than pre-exilian. Psalms 2, 18, 20, 21, and so on. We have expressed reference to the praises of the first temple. Quote, our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised thee, end quote. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 11. And the captives in Zion, were tauntingly asked by their enemies to sing to them, quote, the songs of Zion, end quote. Psalm 137, verses 3 and 4. Singers were a prominent feature in the organisation of the temple at the return. Ezra chapter 2, verses 41 and 65, chapter 7, verses 7, 24, and so on. And this organisation of sanctuary worship is connected again in Chronicles with David. 1 Chronicles chapter 23 verse 5, chapter 25 verse 5, and so on. 
There are even passages which look like quotations of earlier and later psalms, as of Psalm 1 in Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 8. See Ezra chapter 47 verse 12. And the formula of thanksgiving in Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 11. Quote, Give thanks to Jehovah of hosts, for Jehovah is good, for his mercy endureth forever. End quote found only in books 4 and 5 of the Psalter. Few of the Psalms show any trace of the Levitical influences which the critics make dominant after the exile. We may, I think, on a survey of the whole, keep our minds at ease as to the effect upon our Bible of this modern critical theory of Israel's religion. End of section 10